on in the war, uh, theme of warfare, listen to this account uh, from the American War of Independence. <coughs> it says, in the American War of Independence, the famous Battle of Trenton was fought between George Washington and his American troops and Johann Rahl and his Hessian regiments. The Hessians were German soldiers hired to fight the British Empire. There were a lot of war tactics that led to Washington's victory, but there's a curious story that centers around an inattentive Rawl, who frankly seemed to prefer partying to fighting. When a spy handed Rawl a note of the American whereabouts, Rawl put it in his coat pocket and never read it. The note was found after he died in the Trenton battle. So he had this spy who knew where the Americans were, delivered the note to him, and inattentively he put it in his pocket, never read it, and then was found in his coat, dying in that battle. The encouragement that stands out to me in Hebrews chapter 2, one is that we are in a war with many battles. And it's so important for us to hear God, for the lines of communication to be open and a back and forth between God and us. That's what it was like for Abraham as he walked along in the, his journey on this earth. He was hearing, he was he was receiving communication from God and that strengthened him to walk by faith because he was hearing from God. And in Hebrews chapter 2, Abraham is mentioned there. And Hebrews chapter 2, uh, part, part of the summary in looking at it is family, which is really important for us as Christians, and help. That God has made a way, Jesus Christ has made a way to be in His family, for each of us to be in His family. And that it is Jesus Christ that makes a family. And He offers us help. He's a merciful and faithful high priest that when we're tempted, He's there to give us aid. And He's there to help us as descendants of Abraham. There's that phrase in chapter 2 of Hebrews, descendants of Abraham. So we want to look at that. We have help. God is not going to leave us alone in our battles. We can find ourselves trying to battle in our own strength, trying to battle the things that are discouraging us, things that are plaguing us, things that we're going through. But when we come back and read God's word, we realize God shows us, I'll, I'll fight for you. I'll protect you. He told Abraham, oh, I'm, I'm the armor that surrounds you. I'm the one that protects you. Abraham realized that. And that's part of what it meant for Abraham to walk by faith. He, realized, he walked in that reality that God is the one protecting me. 
Second Peter, don't open to this. It's from the J.B. Phillips translation. Second Peter 1, 5 through 19 says, I shall not fail to remind you, Peter's telling them, that Peter shall not fail to remind them of these things, uh, of things like this, although you know them and are already established in the truth. I consider it my duty as long as I live in the temporary dwelling of this body to stimulate you by these reminders. I know that I shall have to leave this body at very short notice, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. Consequently, I shall make the most of every opportunity so that after I am gone you'll remember these things. We were not following a cleverly written up story when we, were t- when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter is saying, I was not following a cleverly written up story when he told these believers about the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus is supreme. Jesus is greater than angels. Jesus is greater than Moses. Jesus is supreme above all. Sometimes, even as believers, we forget that. The communication isn't how it should be, and we come back, yes, Jesus is supreme. The writer of Hebrews, they were going to, as, as I talked about last time I shared, they're going to face difficulty, uncertainty, all these things. So in the beginning of the letter, God is writing something very important. Jesus is supreme. It wasn't a cleverly written up story to convince people or hang in there. Jesus is supreme. He's greater than the angels. We actually saw his majesty with our own eyes, Peter says. He received honor and glory from God the Father himself when that voice said to him, Out of the sublime glory of heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Peter says, We actually heard that voice speaking from heaven. While we were with him on the sacred mountain, the word of prophecy was fulfilled in our hearing. You should give that word your closest attention. For it shines like a lamp amidst all the dirt and darkness of the world until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your heart. Hebrews chapter 2. In verse 5, he's, the writer writes, For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. This is another thing that stood out to me in Hebrews 2, that this letter is written concerning uh, the world to come. He says there, the world to come concerning which we are speaking. Speaking of the future. Looking into the future. And you know how, uh, I don't know what the right word is, addicted humans are to knowing what's going to happen in the future. And to find that out, do many things. Uh, occultish things, trying to find out, like reading their horoscopes every day to find out what's the day going to be like, what's going to happen to me down the road. And we as Christians, we uh, we have that same, <laughs> there's that same desire to know the future, but how blessed we are to have God's Word as we look toward the future. That this written, uh, this word written in Hebrews He's writing concerning the world to come. In the first few verses of Hebrews there, chapter 2, 
he's um, giving them encouragement through the letter, and there's numerous warnings through the letter. But you see in chapter 2, there were, in the first three verses, these words, heard, spoken, spoken, and heard. There's a communication going on. These men heard about God. They heard what was spoken. And that word went into their hearts and changed their lives. But it's something that they heard. It's something that was spoken to them. And he's understanding these Christians need encouragement. They also need warnings. And he's telling them, pay close attention because you could find yourself uh, like a slave or like a son. Later it says in the chapter that death, this fear of death, has kept people slaves all their life. And thinking about a slave in, in this chapter, there was one time Lisa's dad took us whitewater rafting on this river. And as we're going down the river, somebody said, yeah, uh, I don't know how long, a few months ago, somebody was going down here and they, their boat turned over and they died. They got trapped. And so we're going along, going along, and it's a pretty, it's a big river, and it funneled into, uh, just really narrowed into rocks on both sides, like you're not getting out of there. And we're going along in the raft, and under, underneath, like, uh, You've probably all been on a, a big, you, like you get a sense of its power. Like you're not, that it is so strong. It's underneath, right in the middle of that narrow channel was a boat upside down. Like a rowboat, like a five person. How in the world it got there, who knows. But the water that was going over it would have been incredibly powerful. And there we just glided right over the top. and I think that was the boat that... Those people were probably in. How did it end up there? And thinking about the strength and power of that water, how there's there's nothing taking that boat out. It's a, it's there, it's secu- there's nothing gonna the power of that water in thinking how the Bible says that we can be slaves held by the fear of death. There's not there is one thing that can bring us out. Praise God. But there also is the reality that you can live in a slavery where if there's not the communications between you and God, you can begin to believe a lie or believe something you shouldn't and find yourself under that water like that and just stuck there, not able to get out. The writer of Hebrews saw some dangers ahead for the Christians uh, that he was writing to in verse 2. Uh, one there, there was the danger of drifting. He's telling them, pay closer attention. There's a danger here that you could drift. And D.R. Carson has wrote about drifting. He says, people do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate towards godliness. Prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, delight in the Lord. Instead, we drift toward compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide towards godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. 
the writer of the Hebrews in chapter 3 and on warns them of the danger of sin and unbelief hardening their hearts. Chapter 5, the danger of an unwillingness to progress, to, to keep going on with God. He's warning them there's a danger. And chapter 10, the danger of withdrawing from gathering together. There's that temptation as we go through circumstances in our life to heed those warnings. And he's saying, pay much closer attention. In Hebrews chapter 10, 36, this is what we need. He says, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For yet in a very little while, he who is coming will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. We have need of endurance. How do I get that endurance? There's a the, the Bible is full. Abraham's life is a herald of good news. Amen. You may find yourself under that water. Well, praise that God can pull you right. That's no problem for God. He can reach down and pull that boat out of water like a like a little child would pull a boat from the bottom of the bathtub and lift it up and show you. It's no problem for him. How do I get the endurance? What's important for me is we look as we're descendants of Abraham is the faith. I'm hearing God's word. I'm believing God's word. There's faith. And there's faith to believe he picks me up out of that slavery and sets me free. He says, my righteous ones shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back to destruction, but those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. And in those first verses where I mentioned it says heard, spoken, heard, spoken. You might, a person might say, I may say at times in my life, I'm not hearing God speak to me. I don't, yes, I agree what you're saying. It's important that you hear him speak, but he's not speaking to me. Then I'm begging you and I'm encouraging myself, open your Bible and read. And ask God, like Mike shared Feed me with a word. Give me strength. Show me a promise. I believe you, God. I believe what your word says. I, if I haven't heard from God, I, likely I haven't been reading my Bible. This is God's word to speak to us, to give us strength, to give us life, to free us from slavery. All forms of slavery as we walk along. And it's by faith. Um, if we ask God for bread, will he give us a scorpion? Will he give us a rock? No. He'll give us bread, just what we need. Um, Abraham is mentioned there in Hebrews chapter 2. If you're there, uh, in verse 16, for assuredly he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. And in Romans 4, uh, Abraham's also mentioned, it says in Romans 4, it is by faith, in order that it may be in accordance with grace, so that the promise will be guaranteed to all the descendants, 
not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So, uh, faith is the connection that we have with Abraham being our father. And in Romans chapter 1, there is a phrase there, we've heard it before, preached numerous times, the obedience of faith. And at times in my own personal life, I'd hear that word obedience of faith and there would come to my mind uh, an effort on my part. Like, am I being, am I, uh, you know, as soon as I heard that, then self-reflecting, have I been living in the obedience of faith? Have I been doing this? Have I been doing, have I been this and this and this and this? But from Wednesday night, a little bit before then, probably in the last week or so, thinking about the obedience of faith versus the obedience of unbelief. When looking at Abraham's life, who was Abraham looking to bring life? God. Who was going to set who was going to fulfill the promise to Abraham? God. So my faith is in the promises of God. Faith in I believe what God says. That's where my faith rests. It's not me qualifying the level of the strength of my faith by looking, well, did I do this? Did I act in faith? Did I this? Did I this? It's looking at God's word, seeing what his promises are, and am I living by that? Is that the obedience of my faith is that I have a cheerful expectation that God is going to set me free? God is going to set me free of the fear of death. So I'm 40-some years old, and I find you have a lot of fear of death in your heart. Do I just throw the Bible away and say, well, God's not real? Because Jesus has set us free from the fear of death. No, it's something that I walk through by faith and that I wrestle with God in prayer. And that I realize this isn't how the Bible said my life should be. Well, then I look at what God says and I interact with him by faith, believing step by step he'll set me free. When Abraham, in chapter 12 of Genesis, he didn't ask him to go sacrifice his son in chapter 12. It was many years later and many stumblings and mistakes in Abraham's life that God did not depart from Abraham during that time, but he was still working in Abraham and Sarah's life. You know, we look at Sarah and think she laughed when God prom- when she, they heard God's promise. She heard his voice and she laughed. But... Then it says in the New Testament, she had faith. It was faith that allowed her to receive power from God to conceive, to have life within her, to receive the promise of God. But yet we also read her stumblings and her failings. But from the New Testament, we have to understand that God was working. Abraham walked by faith. He lied about his wife. He was walking. Yes, he stumbled. But it was a culmination of growing, walking, growing, walking. And now, chapter 22, God asks a huge, puts a huge challenge of his faith in front of Abraham. And I do believe, I'm sure you would agree, God knew that Abraham was prepared and ready. God's timing is absolutely perfect. Absolutely perfect. And think of Sarah wanting a child, wanting a child, and how important that was in in those days for someone to feel like they were anybody 
if they didn't have a child. And she waited years, years, years. And what a struggle that was for her. But God's timing was perfect. He was working the whole time in her heart to, okay, your womb is totally dead. Now, boom, I'm going to fulfill the promise. And then Abraham says, I'm taking my son up to the top of this mountain. I know what you're asking me to do. But we know in the New Testament, God says, Abraham believed that God could raise him from the dead. That happened through the experiences Abraham had through his life of hearing God's word, wrestling with God in prayer, not understanding, but he didn't let go of his hold uh, on God, his faith in God. In Romans chapter 1, the obedience of faith and not the obedience of unbelief, Mike did a great job of describing, like, how am I going to explain that in my own life? Like just checking things off the list. To me, that's the obedience of unbelief. Like I'm doing it because I know I'm supposed to. God wants us to do things by the obedience of faith. Power. There's power in God. There's help in God. He's a faithful and high priest who is merciful and will help us and give us aid in time of temptation. That's faith. The obedience of faith. This is the context of chapter 1 in Romans. Jesus Christ declared the Son of God with power. Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus Christ, through whom Paul received grace. Among whom you also are called of Jesus Christ, he was telling the Romans, to all who are beloved of God in Rome. And that first verse that I read at the beginning uh, from Second Peter, it talks about a sure word of prophecy and uh Hebrews chapter 2, that Jesus, like I've said, Jesus is supreme. Uh, one way that I've been spoken to in the last few weeks, um, I heard uh, uh, Eric Ludy describing the Christian life in this way. It applies here. He said, you're in a boxing ring in a fight, in a battle, in a war, and into the boxing ring comes your flesh. In some way. And so you step out to the middle of the ring or you may even attack your flesh and start swinging away and flailing and you find you're dead meat. You're under your flesh so fast you don't even know what happened. Then he said, when you're a Christian though, you have Jesus Christ. He's right there with you. And you take his hand and you see the flesh coming into the ring and you take that hand and you smash the flesh. And it goes flying. You're relying on Jesus. And then you see maybe a little bit of self-pity trying to sneak its way up over the ropes. If you go and try and fight it yourself, you're dead. You're going to be on the canvas faster than you know what happened. But if you take the hand of Jesus because he's walking with you and you fight the flesh, you fight self-pity, you fight discouragement with Jesus, it will go flying. Hebrews 2 here, uh, reminding the believers, Jesus is supreme. It says in the second chapter of Hebrews, here are some of the phrases, By grace, Jesus tasted death for everyone. Because he suffered and died, Jesus is crowned with glory and honor. The songs meant a lot to me this morning as, you, as preparing when there's the phrase, Christ is enough for me. 
All things are for Jesus, it says. All things are through Jesus. Jesus is bringing many sons to glory, it says. Because we have the same Father as Jesus, He's not ashamed to call us family. Because we have the same Father as Jesus, He's not ashamed to call us family. And so this is one of the major themes, that Jesus makes a family. Jesus is the one who makes a family. God, please help me with this uh, this phrase. Like, I, I don't make Jesus number one. That's not what I see Romans 1 and Hebrews 1 saying is or 2, that it's declaring. God is declaring Jesus is number one. Yeah. He's number one. He's the one that will bless our children. He's the one that will bless. It's already, it's declared in Romans chapter 1 and Hebrews chapter 2 that Jesus is supreme. Now I have choices to make. I have to walk in the obedience of faith. I have to obey what God asked me to do. But it's not something where I'm making Jesus something in my life. It's already declared he is number one. And he brings, it says there in chapter 2, who's the one that brings these sons to glory? Jesus is the one. He's the one. He's supreme. He brings these sons to glory. And look at Hebrews chapter 2. What about us? (laughs) Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. But one has testified somewhere saying, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? I know there it's talking about Jesus, but I think also it's we're so blessed to be thought of by God. Everything was made, it says here, by Jesus through him and everything was made for him. It's all about Jesus, but God thinks of us. His thoughts are toward us. What the writer, like, what is man that you think of us, God? And then look at verse 13. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. It says there that Jesus is not ashamed to call those who are sanctified his family. So that word is for those. Are you born again? Is there the life of Christ in you? Well, then this word is for you that you're being sanctified and you have the same father as Jesus had and he's not ashamed to call you his, his, his family. He says there, Behold, I and the children whom God has given me. It's a pretty proud moment for a dad or a mom. Wouldn't you agree to stand with your family? Look. Look at the family God has given me. And to think Jesus saying, Behold. Look. I and the children whom God has given me. Now imagine yourself standing up there with all the children of God and Jesus saying, Behold, look, I and the children whom God has given me. That was an important word for these Christians. You know, they were going to face difficulty. The seizure of their property, the persecution, the difficulty, all of that. And the writers believing God would put that in their heart. Behold, I and the children whom God has given me.
Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. We're not to read the Bible out of the obedience of unbelief, but to read it, meditate on it by the obedience of faith. Opening up the Bible with cheerful expectation for encouragement to wonder who we, we wonder as we read are filled with awe, not like questioning unbelief, but wonder at how of who God is as we read the Bible. We get understanding, we get wisdom, we get life as we sit and read God's Word. You imagine yourself, you know, it's been hot the last few days. Just one other thing with ties in with John's story. Can you imagine if there was no communication in that story? Like totally cut off. He would have been dead meat, right? <laughs> Sounds like it. If there would have been no communication, it's the same for us. If there's no communication, we're dead. We're not getting... Like you're saying, off goes where we're supposed to go and we're missed. We're standing there and we missed it. We're in the desert dying of thirst. The saving oasis is God's word. You think about, I get one thing that hits us that we all think about is the perfect diet. You know what the perfect diet is? God's word. Perfect. In the battle that he's warning them, the, the battle that we all face, and what is the weapon that we should use? God's word is the weapon that we should use. When we find ourselves like that, Jesus is supreme. Uh, I want to read to you a little uh, bit of an article that blessed me this week. And speaking about being part of God's family, I think it'll bless you. It's taken from Desiring God. John Piper gets asked some questions and gives some answers. I'll read part of it here and then part at the end. Uh, this is, um, he says, today's question is from Jordan. Good afternoon, Pastor John. I was recently listening to episode 1322. It was titled, He Killed His Wife and Children. Can He Really Be Forgiven? What you said about the older brother jumped out to me. The problem with the older brother is that he lived like a slave, not a son. He related to his father as if his work would earn things instead of enjoying the fellowship of the father's bounty. That's a great picture pulled from Luke 15. I often struggle... Jordan says, with knowing in my heart that no good work can ever be enough to please God. I think in my mind that God is surely not pleased enough with me. I fear I live like this older brother. How do you live as a son and not a slave? How would I know if I'm living as a slave? I'm sharing this because in Hebrews chapter 2, it says, through death, Jesus might render powerless Satan who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. So here's Piper's answer. Okay, the first step in not living like a slave but like a son of God is to stop saying mistaken, slave-like things about the Father. Jesus said in John 15:15, No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You could say sons as well. Both pictures are in the New Testament, 
and both are getting at the same reality. But here the point is this. Jesus said, I have called you friends. For all that I heard from my Father, I have made known to you. One of the marks of a slave is that we act like we live way out on the edge of the plantation in the slave quarters, where nobody knows what the master's plans are. When you don't know what the master's plans are, how he does his business, you can easily say false things about him. One of the first marks of a son or a friend is that we know him. We're brought into his counsels. We see how he works. We see how he makes his decisions. We see what he's up to. We begin to understand his ways, and he goes about running the world. We stop saying things about him that are not true. Jordan, I say this out of love, so please take this right. Here's one step you can take away from a slave, like a slave-like relation to God. Never say again what you said. I often struggle with knowing my heart that no good can ever be enough to please God. Piper says, don't say that anymore. Now, I might be misunderstanding you. I'm going to give you the benefit of the doubt here, but it sounds like you really believe this, like no good work can ever be enough to please God. That's slave talk. That's not son talk. Step one is, to believe, is not to believe that. Don't say that anymore. Piper says, I'm lingering on this because you're not the problem here. Thousands of people have been taught to say that by quoting Isaiah 64.6. We even sing it. In the King James it says, But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousness is like filthy rags. Piper writes, How many Christians have been taught to say that about every one of their good deeds as a Christian? That's not what Isaiah is talking about. Let me emphasize, read it in context. He is not describing the good deeds of a genuine believer, but good deeds done, not good deeds of a genuine believer, good deeds done in the power of the Holy Spirit. He was speaking to the hypocritical religious acts that made God hold his nose. When Jesus said, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works, he did not mean that they may see your filthy rags. He didn't say that. When Paul said that Christians bear the fruit of the Holy Spirit, the Holy, Holy, Holy Spirit, he did not mean that the Spirit produces filthy rags. When Paul said Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works, he didn't mean Christ died to create filthy rags. What has happened in our grassroots theology is that in our zeal to clarify the pervasiveness of sin and the perfection of justification, we have undercut the Spirit's work in sanctification. But the Spirit's work is very real and very precious and should not be called filthy rags. We'll come back to finish that. How is Jesus, who is the perfect representation of the Father, described in Hebrews chapter 2? Uh, in the last few verses there in chapter 2, he's described as merciful and faithful. Just like God the Father, just like the Holy Spirit, merciful and faithful. So, seeing Jesus like that, him representing and showing us God, the perfect representation, with the men who were there on Wednesday night for the Bible study, do you think Abraham would say amen to that? That God is merciful and faithful? Yes. 
every one of us would as we looked at Abraham's life. One of the huge things that stood out is God is merciful and faithful. And in verse 16 of chapter 2 of Hebrews, it says, He gives help to the descendants of Abraham. You're not in this world alone. You're not reading some godless novel that God's not in. In every single detail of our life, He is there to help the descendants of Abraham. In Luke, uh, uh, magnifying God's mercifulness and faithfulness, in Luke, it says, Jesus replied and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers. And they stripped him and beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. In the book of John, it says, Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now from now on. Sin no more. A merciful and faithful high priest. So what did Abraham hear? I'm saying many times here it's important for us to hear God. So from our Bible study, Genesis chapter 12 up to 22, here's some things God said to Abraham through his life. Go from your country to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. In you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth. Walk through the land, for I will give it to you. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Look toward heaven and number the stars, so shall your offspring be. I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you, and may multiply you greatly. Behold, my covenant is with you. I have made you. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations. I will establish my covenant between me and you. I will give you, I will give to you and your offspring. Through Abraham's life, he heard God speaking to him. He is a father to us in a way that he was a man of faith, who believed God's word. As we looked at on Wednesday, I already mentioned in Genesis 12, he convinces his wife to lie about being his wife. And Carrie pointed out on Wednesday, we see there that God rescued him out of that because of Sarah. She was innocent as far as it seems there, that God's heart is for the innocent. And I took away from Wednesday night, if I, if I search my heart and allow other brothers into my life to speak to me about different situations, if I'm innocent, God will be for me. He'll help me. He'll rescue me. And then in Genesis 16, Abraham fathers Ishmael. The great man of faith was convinced by his wife, Sarah. Let's, we've waited long enough. Let's try ourselves. And then in Genesis 20, Abraham tells King Abimelech that Sarah is his sister. <laughs> it's, not, it's amazing how God came to Abimelech that night. This is what God said to him. 
God comes to Abimelech in a dream and tells him he's a dead man because of the woman you have taken, for she is a man's wife. Look at how God was working to first honor his name. He made a covenant. He made an oath by his own. He can't lie. And so he came to Abimelech that night and said, you, you're a dead man if you touch that woman, even though Abraham wasn't, being to- wasn't honest about, totally honest about that. So Abraham's faith grows stronger and stronger over the years. And we come to Genesis 22. And this is where God asks Abraham to offer Isaac. So we're right there at the foot of the mountain with him. We're going to get up in the morning with him and walk for a few minutes with him. Um, But in Romans, it says, Abraham obeyed by going out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. The important thing there that stood out to me is where Abraham was looking. Uh, Phil has mentioned Alexander Strouch a few times. I listened to him a little bit this week. He had this quote that stood out to me that I think applies here and, and possibly in our lives. Strout said, if you're living off the past, the church will never move forward. He was talking about leadership and being a leader. If you're living off the past, the church will never move forward. How did Abraham, can you picture him like step by step in faith, taking another step, taking another step, not looking back, looking forward, remembering what happened to Lot's wife, we have those warnings and those encouragements to look forward. Let's move forward. Sarah laughed at the promise of God. She said, my womb is dead. How would you react when you, if you were God, how might you react to Sarah when she said that? You might like, hey, I've told you guys a thousand times. How many times have I told Abraham? Do I have to tell... He's a merciful and faithful high priest. You know what he says? As for your wife Sarah, I'll bless her. I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her. And Romans 4 said, Sarah received power to conceive by faith, since she considered him faithful who had promised. And then we talked about on Wednesday night, we see in Abraham's life there in Genesis that he struggled at times with prayer, or not prayer, with the promises. Um, not really understanding why things weren't progressing like he wanted them to. But we also realize it's written in the New Testament there in Romans that Abraham grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. So while he was wrestling, while he was struggling, he was also growing strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now with Abraham back at the mountain... um, you know, it says to take him to the land of Moriah. And you, pro- most of you know, if not all of you. Do you know what Mount Moriah was later? Anybody? 
Temple Mount. Golgotha? Calvary? Look how <laughs> God has everything. Like if you're not a believer in God, you think how long ago it was that Abraham was asked to offer Isaac up and then Jesus going to the same place and dying for your sins. That the same sacrifice that was asked of Abraham, Abraham could never say, God, you don't understand. Because God could see, I am gonna, I'm going to even take it a step further, Abraham. I am going to sacrifice my son. And he's going to bring freedom and life for every, he's going to die for this, every sin. The same place. Wow. <laughs> That's amazing. The obedience of faith. So early in the morning, Abraham, two of his young men, and Isaac set off in the obedience of faith. And so Abraham is there at the top of the mountain. I mentioned on Wednesday, David Pawson, it's just an interesting kind of side note. Uh, Sarah was 99, around 99 when she conceives. And then in right after chapter in 23, she dies at 127. So based on that math, he was uh, not saying this is gospel truth, but saying Abraham, uh, Isaac was probably in his 30s. And thinking of a 30-year-old man in submission to his dad, being tied down, knowing what was going on, and I don't know whether living off the faith of his dad, I don't know, or just had a faith too that was growing in him, that God is able to raise me from the dead if this is God's will. Amazing. And then just as Abraham raises the knife to obey God, God provides a sacrifice. And the last words that God spoke to Abraham in Genesis 22 that's, that are recorded, it says, and said, uh, Genesis 22, 16 through 18, God said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Indeed, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So, uh, how does this apply to us? As much as the promises were sure to Abraham, they're sure to us. We look back and we read Abraham and we can see what happened in his life. And of course we say, yes, amen, it's true. Look how God was faithful. The application for us is that the promises are, it's the same for us. Why? Because God is sworn by himself. In Hebrews 6. In Hebrews 6.13, it says, For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply you. And so having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end to every dispute. In the same way God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. 
finish with this at the, the end of this article this young person or this man who asked about being a son he says one of the ways we know we are children of God is that God has sent his spirit to lead us he leads us into warfare with sin he leads us into the paths of righteousness here's Romans 8 14 through 16 for all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall in back into fear but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. That witness he bears is, number one, his power in us to do things that are no longer filthy rags. That's witness number one. I'm working in you to produce my fruit, not your filth, Piper writes. Number two, he gives us a sweet assurance that we have an all-caring father. Abba, Father. When that cry rises from the heart of a childlike need, it is the Spirit in us. Here's the key to a non-slave sonship relationship with God. Get to know God in His Word. You are no longer slaves who do not know what the Father's up to. You're in a big house. Your slavery is over. You may walk into the Father's study at any time and interrupt Him. His book is 1,200 pages long and full of gold and silver and honey for his children. That's where you know him and meet him, in his word. Realize that because he gave his son, your sins are forgiven and his spirit enables you to please him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy and faithfulness. And Jesus, your ability to bring many sons to glory. We want to continue on with you. We want to look ahead in faith like Abraham. Thank you for all the healing. Thank you for all the strength you've given us over the years. Thank you for the wonderful things you've done in our life. And help us, Father, to walk today to cheerfully expect your word and your the Holy Spirit to bear fruit in our life. Not filthy rags, Father. Every good thing that you've done in our life is beautiful because it's from you. You're good. You're kind. Continue to work in each of our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.